Uh, we're in Ecclesiastes, and uh, this morning we're in chapter 7. Uh, each year, most years, it's sure, we work through a book of the Bible. And with each of the books that we've worked through over the past few years, there's usually one or two passages that are particularly tricky, particularly troubling, particularly difficult, and we have hit that passage this morning. You came on the right day, man. We have hit it square on. Ecclesiastes 7. It's the, these are the kinds of passages where you just, if you didn't have to preach them, you never would, let's be honest. And if you didn't have to read them, you never would. And if there was one or two passages that you wish probably weren't in the Bible, this might even be right up there in your list. So Ecclesiastes 7, it is undoubtedly some of the most shocking, some of the most bizarre, some of the most obscure verses that are in the entire Bible, uh, without a word of exaggeration. A couple of verses in particular are really strange, and we'll get to those. But Ecclesiastes 7, I won't read the whole chapter, but it is useful if you get a chance this week to read the chapter. Read Ecclesiastes 7, and what you'll find as you read it is it sounds a lot like Proverbs. Uh, this part of Ecclesiastes, there's a couple of chapters, they sound very Proverbsy. It's, there's not a long flow of prose, it's more like just a snippet and then a snippet and a, and a maxim, you know, sort of this little uh, saying, a little uh, proverb for life, da-da-da, and it's, so it just kind of hops along like that. But the thing that you notice with Ecclesiastes as opposed to Proverbs is that Ecclesiastes is just depressing. The Proverbs are like Proverbs in need of Prozac. They're really, really, you know, they get you down kind of Proverbs. They're not the, the uplifting type. You have Proverbs like, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Frustration is better than laughter. The day of death is better than the day of birth. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. I mean, this is not the chapter you read if you're after a pick-me-up. It is just, it's tough. It's difficult. There's definitely some uplifting stuff here, but as a whole, this is not particularly encouraging stuff. But really where it gets shocking is down towards uh, verse 16 and 17. Let me just put that in context for you, and we'll read it from verse 13 in chapter 7. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, you cannot discover anything about your future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. And then here is the clincher right here. This will shock you. Do not be over-righteous. Neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked. And do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. <laughs> so it sounds like what he's saying in verse 16 and 17 is don't, don't overdo it on the righteousness. You know, don't, don't go too crazy on the, on the righteousness stuff, you know, on living a godly life, on being a good person. Don't go too crazy on that. Uh, don't overdo it. Just, just, just moderation is really the answer. And then in the next verse, it sounds like he's saying, you know, don't be over wicked. In other words, you could be a little bit wicked. It sounds, I mean, isn't he giving us license then to be just a little bit sinful? So on the one hand, the shocker is don't go crazy with righteousness. And then on the other hand, well, maybe you could be a little bit sinful at the same time. It just sounds like the opposite of what we're supposed to do. 
as Christians? Aren't we supposed to be pursuing righteousness? Aren't we supposed to be pursuing godliness? This sounds like godlessness. It sounds like this path of moderation that he's encouraging us to take. Let me just try here and, and, and step back and put this in a little bit of a broader context to see what the quester is saying. In Proverbs, as in most of the books of the Old Testament, there, there is a basic formula for life, which we could call the character consequence formula. And it basically says that if you live a good life, if you are obedient, if you pursue wisdom and righteousness and godliness, you will be successful, you will be blessed, you will experience the blessings that we talked about last week in Ecclesiastes 6, wealth and uh, long life and children, you'll be, you'll be blessed. Uh, time and again in Proverbs, this is, this is promised, the blessings of obedience, the blessings of faithfulness. So good character leads to good consequences in life. And the opposite's true, that if you have questionable character, if you live a disobedient life, unfaithful, rebellious against God, if you are the wicked in Proverbs, then what happens to you? You come to ruin, violence comes upon you, your enemies overtake you, your life's probably going to be cut short, you'll live in poverty. These are the things that are promised to those who have bad character. So it's quite a clear formula. Good character, good consequences. Bad character, bad consequences in life, in this life. So you could basically guarantee on the basis of your behavior, on the basis of how you live, how things are going to go for you in life. You can take it to the bank and that's just how it worked. The problem that the quester is identifying, and, and, and you can understand, is that he's just seen too many examples of when that doesn't work. And what he sees is the righteous perishing in their righteousness. What he sees is the wicked living long in their wickedness. What he sees is the character consequence formula breaking down. And the guarantee that X equals Y just collapsing, that the formula doesn't seem to work. And it's not hard to think of examples of this, is it? In our own lives, in our own world, where character, certain character, good or bad, doesn't equal certain consequences. We often wish it would, but so often it doesn't. You think of the, the sincere Christian couple, desperate to have children who can't. And yet teenage girls getting pregnant who don't even want to get pregnant and having an abortion. Where's the character consequence formula there? Where's the good life, faithful life, equals certain consequences, equals some entitlement to some kind of blessing? You think of diligent people who, who save well, are disciplined with finances, seek to honor God with their money, and they fall victim to some dodgy investment banker who preys on the, on the vulnerable and the elderly, rips them off, and then they don't seem to suffer many consequences because their money's tied up in trusts and companies and so on. They never really seem to be fully held to account. Where's the character consequence formula there? So you can relate to what he's saying, right? You, you, I mean, we see that. We see the righteous, the so-called righteous, perishing in their righteousness. We see the wicked, the dubious of character, the questionable character, living long in their wickedness, thriving, flourishing. We see bad people getting away with all kinds of things, ripping people off, trampling over others, wounding people and seeming to get away with it. We see the collapse of the character consequence formula. That's what the quester is lamenting. And what he does boldly, some would say stupidly, is he points the finger at God for this. And he says in verse 13, consider what God has done. 
from the quester's perspective, this isn't just something that's part of life. This is something God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? God is the one who's made the character consequence formula crooked. He's the one who's led to the breakdown in what should be a reasonably straightforward equation. And so he says, God has made one as well as the other. You can't really discover anything about your future. And it's in that world, it's in that story that the quester sees the way the world is as far as he can see it. That's the context for him giving this shocking advice that he gives in verse 16 and 17 where he says, don't bother being too righteous and don't go crazy with wickedness. Why go to either extreme? Because he's saying that a righteous life can't guarantee you any particular blessing and a wicked life isn't going to guarantee that you come to any particular ruin, so what's the point? Really what he's saying is he can't find a basis for good character. He can't find any solid basis on which to advocate good and godly character. What's the point? So he gets to his conclusion and says it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. In other words, it's good to grasp the advice about don't go crazy with righteousness and it's also good not to let go of the other piece of advice, don't go overboard with wickedness. And what you should do, he says, is avoid all extremes. Or another translation says the one who fears God will follow both. Both pieces of advice avoiding the extremes of over-righteousness and the extremes of over-wickedness. What he's really advocating in the end is this kind of moral moderation, this kind of character moderation, somewhere between righteousness and wickedness. We're just supposed to walk this kind of middle path. It is radical stuff. It's, it's troubling. And I think what we have to realize at the outset is, really for the quester, this is a cry of defeat. Not really a serious solution about how we're supposed to live. It's a cry of defeat from him in his total failure to find any basis for godly character. He sees the character consequence formula having collapsed around him, righteous, perishing, wicked, flourishing, and he says, in view of that, what's the point? Don't bother going to either extreme, just walk some middle road. As one commentator put it, the quester's shocking advocacy of moderation is more a despairing cry of protest than a viable way forward. That's really what you're reading, is a cry of protest. This is the world as he saw it, crooked, where people don't get what they deserve, and in view of that, what's the point of being too righteous? The question for us is, what on earth do we do with this? I mean, how do you get off the sinking ship? This is difficult stuff and this is troubling stuff. And people have various ways of trying to interpret this chapter. Uh, Some people say, well, you know, what what he's really saying is don't pretend to be righteous. That he's kind of talking about the the fakey kind of righteousness where it's it's the pretense of goodness. But to be honest, that just it's it's clutching at straws. It's not really the way that word is used. It simply means don't be too righteous and don't be too wicked. And all I can suggest we do, honestly, with a passage like this, is that we do what we've tried to do throughout the whole series on Ecclesiastes, and we ask, what does this mean in view of Jesus? What does this look like in view of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? That's really what we should be doing the whole way through. That's really what we should be doing every time we open our Bible, is asking, what, what does this mean 
in view of Jesus of Nazareth. And so let's try and put it in that broader context and see what light gets shed on this otherwise troubling and problematic passage. Keep your finger in Ecclesiastes and flick over for a minute to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the great messianic promises, prophecies in the Old Testament, prophecy about uh, Jesus, in particular about Jesus' death and his suffering and its purpose and its result. But look at just verse 9 of Isaiah 53 and think about this verse in relation to the character consequence formula, character and consequences. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So what kind of character did Jesus have? If you just look at it particularly in terms of this character consequence formula, what kind of character did Jesus have? Obviously the righteous character, the perfect character. Done no violence, no deceit found in his mouth. He was on the right side of the character equation. And yet what are the consequences according to this chapter and according to this verse? He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Not with the righteous, but with the wicked. So if you look at Jesus' death just purely in terms of the character consequence formula, what you see is the total breakdown of that formula. What you see is the one of the righteous character, ultimate righteous character, getting exactly and precisely what the wicked deserve what the unrighteous deserve. Really, Jesus' death, from one perspective, is the ultimate example of Ecclesiastes 7. It's the ultimate example of exactly what the quester saw, the righteous perishing in their righteousness. That's what happened on the cross. Before we get to talking about the benefits of the cross for us, we need to see it as the ultimate example of human injustice, the ultimate example of the character consequence formula breaking down. Here is the supremely righteous man. If anyone deserved blessing, it was him. And yet he gets assigned a grave with the wicked and experiences the ultimate consequence of wickedness, death, suffering, and brutality. It's the reversal of this formula. The whole character consequence formula came crashing down at the cross. It's Ecclesiastes taken to an extreme. And yet it's right there in the death of Jesus that God is doing something completely new and completely different and giving us a fundamentally new basis for character. Not the old character consequence formula, but something new, something that centers around Jesus. And there's a hint of it, even in Ecclesiastes, even in this chapter. It's intriguing that Ecclesiastes 7 is, I would say, the darkest, most hopeless, most shocking passage in all of Ecclesiastes. And yet, right there is the one verse that's quoted in the New Testament out of Ecclesiastes. Only one verse in Ecclesiastes is ever quoted in the New Testament, and it's Ecclesiastes 7.20. Just two verses on from this crazy stuff the, the, the quester is talking about, Verse 20, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. Does that sound familiar to any of you who who have read Romans? This is, you get to Romans 3, and Paul quotes this verse, more or less, 
in the sweeping statement he makes about the sinfulness of humanity. In Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul's quoting that very verse from Ecclesiastes to show us that all of us have sinned. And really what he's saying is, and what the quester himself is saying, is that we have all experienced terminal character failure. None of us are on the righteous side of the character equation. None of us are on the good end of that. See, we can talk, in a, in a relative sense, you can talk about being a good person. In a relative sense, you can talk about humble people, faithful people, hardworking people, diligent people, in a relative sense, compared to one another. But in an absolute sense, we can't. Because in an absolute sense, none of us are righteous. None of us have good character. Our character is shot through with sin and selfishness and the corruption that comes from just a self-centered life. So really, you and I wouldn't even want the character consequence formula to work, even if it did, because we're all on the wrong side of it. We're all on the wrong side of it. And if we got the consequences that our character actually deserved, you wouldn't like the look of it. You can look around the room and feel like you're doing well and feel like your character is okay because you're more honest than that person and you're more hardworking than that person. But compared to the image and glory of God, which is the context Paul gives us in Romans 3, compared to our role as image bearers of the divine glory, we have fallen woefully and miserably far short. And Paul doesn't say this to condemn us. He says it to show us our need of a saviour. He says it to lead us to Jesus because Jesus has provided for our character failure. Jesus has provided for our inability to have the kind of character that Proverbs calls us to, that the Old Testament and the New call us to, to be image bearers of God, to reflect His character. We've failed, but on the cross, God has made a provision for it and He has invited us into the death of Jesus where we can experience forgiveness where we can experience renewal, and where that old identity, that old character, can be stripped away. Like a a cicada shell just falling off us. That old identity just gone at the cross. The old self, the old me, completely de-centered. I lose my identity at the cross. I lose that sense of who I am. I share in Jesus' death. And in in so doing, my old character is completely stripped away. And then we participate in the resurrection of Jesus, where we receive an entirely new identity with new possibilities for a new character. We share in the resurrection of Jesus, and there we gain a new identity, a new identity that's completely consumed in Christ. It's completely wrapped up in Jesus, completely enveloped in Jesus. It's no longer you and I that live. It's Christ. We're living in Him and He's living in us. Our identity is completely consumed in Him now. And that opens up brand new possibilities and a brand new basis on which we can build character, on which we can pursue character. And the great hope of the resurrection is this, that one day God is going to bring about a day here on earth when the world that the quester saw is going to be no more. That one day there will be no more righteous perishing in their righteousness. There will be no more wicked living long in their wickedness. There'll be no more of this injustice that we see in the present world. There'll be no more people getting ripped off. 
There'll be no more scandal. There'll be no more injustice and unfairness. There'll be equality. There'll be peace. And righteousness will prevail at last. That's the day that we have to look forward to. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. And that picture changes the picture that the questor sees in Ecclesiastes 7. Because you have to at least be fair to him and say he only saw part of the story. You can't blame him for standing where he stood in the story. Before Jesus, before the fullness of the gospel was revealed, this is the world that he saw, a world that looked utterly crooked, without much hope of redemption. But you and I now see a bigger picture. We see a different story. We see the fullness of that story centered around the death and resurrection of Jesus, culminating in the final renewal of all things. And because we see a bigger picture, because we see a fuller story, we can see a new basis for our character. We still see the world that the quester saw. I mean, we still live in this world, in the present, in a world where the righteous do perish and the wicked do flourish. We still see all that crookedness, but in the middle of that crookedness, we see extraordinary hope because of the gospel. We see lives being transformed and renewed. We see the power of the Spirit. We see the death and resurrection of Jesus changing and transforming and beginning to make straight what has become crooked. We see the straightness. We see the plan starting to work out, even in the midst of this crooked world. And so what does this say then about our character? What kind of basis does this give us for character? Because you can't really follow the quester down the road that he goes into this kind of dead-end street of just advocating moral moderation. It's a hopeless path. It just leads you into this no man's land between righteousness and wickedness. We have a bigger story. But at the same time, we can't just go back to the old formula. And sometimes this seems to be what Christians want to do. They want to go back to the old character consequence formula. And we think that because of Jesus, all that's really happened is that the formula's kind of changed a bit. That now what it means is, if I'm righteous in this life, I'm going to receive blessing in the next life. And if I'm wicked in this life, I'm going to receive punishment in the next life. And it's still all about the character consequence formula. Now it's just a bit delayed. But I don't know that that takes account of the fullness of what Jesus has done. Because I think through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God hasn't given us a formula anymore. I think he's given us a person. As a basis for our character in the present, God hasn't given us a formula. He's given us Jesus. He's given us the person of his son. That's the basis for our character in the present. That's the basis for pursuing a righteous life in the present because of what Jesus has done for you and I. It's really not about your character at all. It's about Jesus' character. It's really not about how good or bad you think you are, how good or bad you might be this afternoon or tomorrow. It's all about what Jesus has done for you. And you living within the character of Jesus. He's had the perfect character. And he's secured for you through his death and resurrection immeasurable blessing. 
and he invites you to experience that. It's really not about your character at all. It's all about what Jesus has accomplished and you living within the character of Christ. And then, yes, we do outwork that character. That doesn't mean it's not important for us to pursue righteousness. It doesn't mean it's not important for us to pursue godliness, but we do it as an outflow and an expression of living in Christ and living in and within His character. And so I would say the basis of our character in the present is not the old character consequence formula. I think that did break down at the cross. I think that was the end of it. It's done away with. The basis of our character is Jesus. And, and maybe the best definition that we can give of, of what character is, what Christian character is in the present, is that it is our fitting participa- participation in the story of God. The story of God that centers around Jesus. Character is our fitting participation in the story of God. We know what God is doing on this planet. He is restoring and reconciling and redeeming and renewing and recreating and all kinds of other great R-E words. He is doing these great things through Jesus. He calls us and invites us to be part of that renewing work. And part of this is the outworking of our own character in our own lives. So maybe instead of thinking about your character just in terms of rules or just in terms of formulas or commandments or principles, think of it in terms of what is fitting participation within this ongoing story of God, within this ongoing story of what God is doing through Jesus. So take just a practical example. Take the example of you keeping your word to somebody else. You commit to somebody that you're going to do something. Commit to a team of people that you'll do, that you'll show up at a certain time, that you'll fulfill certain responsibilities, that you'll get a project done within a certain time frame, that you'll do things to certain expectations. You know, we make these commitments. We give our word to another person, to a group, to a team, to a ministry, to whoever. We make a commitment. Now, having made that commitment, what is a fitting participation in the story of God in terms of how you fulfill that commitment? What is fitting? See, we could go to some kind of principle, some kind of rule, and say it's about uh, integrity. That's the principle. Or uh, or, or commitment as as a rule. And And we tend to want to go to those principles and those rules. But what if you looked at it in this narrative sense and said, what is fitting participation within the story of God? Well, what is God doing on earth? He is restoring. He is restoring relationships between humanity and himself, between humanity and one another. What do restored relationships look like? Aren't they, among other things, characterized by commitment and honesty? When you break your word to someone, when you say, yeah, I'll do it, I'll be there, I'll show up, I'll get it done, I'll do it this way, and then you let people down and you break your word, that's not just you breaking your word, that's a a violation of relationship. That's a relational bond. It is, biblically speaking, a failure to love one another. It's a relational issue. And it works against the story of what God is doing because God is bringing relationships together. God is forging, through Christ, relationships characterized by honesty, by integrity, by commitment. And as, if, we, if we break our word and our, and our yes becomes no and our no becomes yes, then really we are, we are swimming against the story that God is unfolding. What is fitting participation within the story of God? It is that our relationships would image the type of relationships 
that God is bringing about and the type of relationships that God will one day bring about in the new creation when they're fully and finally renewed, then they'll be characterized by complete and total integrity. Our character in the present should be a little foretaste of that final character we'll have when Christ returns. Take another example. Take the example of uh, sexual purity uh, for couples before, before they get married. Should we live together before we get married? Should we sleep together before we get married? How do you address that as a character issue? See, again, we, we want to go typically to rules and commandments and throw a verse at the other person and say, well, this is what the Bible says and here's the principle or here's the commandment. But what if you looked at it in the sense of what is, what is fitting participation within the story of God? What is in keeping with the story of God through Jesus Christ? Well, you think about what marriage is supposed to be. Isn't it supposed to be an imaging and a reflection of the story of Jesus and the church? Jesus gave his life for the church on the cross and betrothed himself to her, in a sense. And now in the present, what is, what is Jesus doing? He is purifying his bride. He is wanting us as his church to make ourselves, keep ourselves pure for our wedding day, preparing ourselves for the day of our wedding, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, as Revelation describes it, when we will be fully and finally united to our groom, to Christ. That's a story. And God intends marriage between those people that follow Him to be a reflection, a little reflection of that story, so that in the marriage relationship we're testifying to the reality of what Christ and the church look like. And that calls for purity in the present. That calls for a faithfulness to marriage, that we keep ourselves sexually pure outside of marriage. Because in so doing, we are testifying to what Christ is doing with and through and in the church in the present, keeping the church pure in preparation for its final wedding day. See, again, we can appeal to the story of what God is doing as a basis for our character rather than just a rule here and a commandment there which can tend to exist in isolation. So I would say that ultimately we can take some things out of Ecclesiastes 7, but maybe not the whole lot. That we can, with the quester, despair and lament over the injustice of life. That no matter what kind of character you have in this life, even as we participate in the story of God, it's no guarantee that things are going to go well for you. You can participate in God's story through humility and hard work and still get muscled out of the way by some colleague clamoring for more attention from the boss. That's still going to happen. You can be faithfully devoted to Christ your entire life and still get terminal cancer. There's a sense of injustice with that. It's hard to understand. And it's difficult to explain. But we have to accept that the character consequence formula is gone. There is no guarantee that a righteous character in this life is going to lead to certain blessings, certain protections, or certain provisions in this life. But what we do know is that even in those times when we might be wounded by life, hurt by others, and afflicted, that even in those times of dying, 
we experience a resurrection. We experience some form of rising because our character is forged in those times. That we experience this inner renewal, that real strength comes in weakness, and real power sometimes is manifest in defeat, and real honor is shown in shame, and real wisdom is displayed sometimes in foolishness. It certainly was on the cross. Would it be any less in our lives? It's the nature of Christian character. It's dying and rising. It's death and resurrection together. Paul certainly found that in the passage that Ryan read out. He said, I carry around in my body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be made known in you. For the sake of his churches, he was prepared to take the dying end of the equation, to experience incredible affliction in order that others might receive life and might have the gospel come to them. The old character consequence formula is gone. There is no guaranteed blessing for good character. But there is a new basis for our character. Not a formula, not a rule or a commandment, but a person, Jesus Christ. And the story of which he is the main event. And so I would suggest that just day by day, in the big and small decisions that you make around your character, ways of thinking, ways of speaking, ways of treating others, that maybe we learn to ask, what is fitting participation in the ongoing story of God? What does it look like for me to be moving with the flow of the story? Walking in line with where God is taking the story? And what kind of character is going to best enable me to participate in the renewing work that God is doing on earth right now through Jesus? That's the basis of our character. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that he he is the one who gives hope to these hopeless, seemingly hopeless verses in Ecclesiastes, where there just seems to be no reason really to pursue righteousness, no real basis on which to pursue good character. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that he's taken away our complete failure to be who we were created to be. And he's invited us to experience the blessing of life and redemption because of you. We're grateful, Lord, and we thank you that on that rock of Christ, there is now a firm basis for us to pursue good character. But I pray that, I pray that we would not do that out of some kind of legalism, some kind of moral striving, some kind of desire to earn brownie points. But Lord, that we would simply do it as an expression and an outflow of our deep love and gratitude for you. So show us what it means to participate in your story, to live out the story of God as you move it towards its incredible ending, reconciling and renewing all things to yourself through Christ. We thank you for your invitation to be a part of it. And we step into it. We lean into it. In Jesus' name. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to 
connectionresources.org.nz